Father, our Lord, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, as we continue our series called Covenant, we're going to look at one of those Old Testament stories that you read and kind of scratch your head, and you ask maybe, why is that in the Bible? What's the deal with snakes and poles and looking up the snakes on poles? I mean, this is kind of confusing. I mean, what did this mean then? And if we were going to ask the Lutheran question, what does this mean now? We're going to go back and look again at Numbers chapter 21. Sue read those verses to you tomorrow, before today. Uh, it takes place uh, during the time when the children of Israel were wandering through the Sinai Desert. They had been delivered from slavery out of Egypt. They had witnessed some pretty amazing miracles, everything from the parting of the Red Sea to the Red Sea flooding over the Egyptian soldiers. They had been provided food in the desert. We had manna suddenly appear, even water that came out of rocks after Moses hit the rock. Uh, they had received the word of the Lord, the Ten Commandments, directly from God. In fact, the very first said it said that God wrote it himself with his own finger. So they had that. They had been promised a land flowing with milk and honey. They were poised for success, prosperity, and abundance. But, and there is always a but, it seems, in the story. They had a big problem. It's a problem that still exists today. They could not stop complaining. They could not stop griping. Or as the old King James Version said, they murmured. They murmured against God. They murmured against Moses. Can you imagine the sound of a couple of million people murmuring? I bet that sounded interesting. And they wouldn't stay faithful to God. God had brought them out of slavery. He was leading them to a promised land. And yet nothing suited them. They complained about the food. They complained about Moses' leadership. They complained about the risks involved in entering the promised land. They complained about how long this whole process was taking. So let's go back and take a look at what happens when you spend too much time murmuring, complaining, and griping against the Lord. But first of all, i got to tell you that my 21st century American mind struggles with stories like these. Now, I believe the Bible. I, I, I believe every single word, but I'm going to be honest with you and tell you that there are some sections of it that I just don't fully understand. And in this particular story, I don't understand really why things happened the way they happened, but I do understand the lessons it teaches. Now, why do I know what lessons? Because I can look a little further in the Bible, and I think this will be up on the screen. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 to 11, said these things happened to Moses and the people of Israel for our benefit. He said, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And then in verse 11, these things, and he's talking about that stuff back in the Old Testament, happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings to us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So when you read stories like this, a bunch of snakes biting a bunch of people and all that kind of stuff, you really need to learn to ask yourself some questions. 
Like, what lesson can we possibly learn from this story? What warnings should we be heeding? What examples should we be following? What changes should we be making? Now, one of the things I have to tell you is that when you read the Old Testament, and, and I know that there are a lot of people who don't bother with the Old Testament. They figured it's, it's old stuff. But I'm going to tell you that when you read the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, you need to understand what they call the, the uh, principle of progressive revelation. Now, that's kind of a big term. The principle of progressive revelation. And simply what that means is that God revealed himself to his people over a period of centuries, and he kind of did it in a progressive sort of way. In other words, he kind of revealed about as much about himself as the people were capable of understanding at that point in time. And so through the course of many generations, and the Old Testament covers about 4,000 years of time, uh, people began to understand more and more about God and his character. I mean, they, they, there were events that took place that demonstrated God's justice, his sense of fair play. There were events that demonstrated his mercy when he chose not to punish people when he could very well have. Uh, there were events that demonstrated his power and his ability to intervene in people's lives, like parting the Red Sea. And there were times when God did not intervene at all. So as we read through the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, we see that God is a God who cannot be manipulated. God is not a God who can be controlled. God is not a God that can be conned some way. Uh, but we see a God who is capable of great compassion. A God who expects his people, that's you and me, to treat other people with great compassion. We also see a God who sometimes lets us experience the consequences are of our behavior, especially when you and I are living in rebellion to the ways that he spelled out so very clearly. Now, when we read this Old Testament again, we need to understand that it's the story of God revealing himself to his people and to this world. So in here, Old Testament, we find demonstrations of justice and power and holiness and righteousness and mercy and compassion and forgiveness, all different aspects of God's amazing character. But yet what we know is the ultimate revelation of God's character was who? It was Jesus. It's ultimately seen in Jesus. God determined that the very best way that you and I could know who God really was was to send his son who was revealed in human fashion. He became one of us. God so loved the, the world, we, we read this already today, that he sent his only begotten son. That's why Jesus said to uh, Philip one time, he said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, you know what that's like. I mean, there are some people who would say, if you've ever seen Eric, you've seen his dad. They're referring to me. Happens sometimes. You know, I met your kids. Now I understand you. Why am I looking at you? <laughs> I was looking at Patty. <laughs> right, Gage? <laughs> okay. Now, when we read these stories, again, in the Old Testament, and we wonder, why did this happen, and why did this happen 
that way, we need to understand that many times it had to happen that way because at that time, at that place, that's about as much as the human race could understand at that time about the nature of God. Now, some concepts, such as the concept of justice, the concept of personal property, uh, the respect for human life, they are so ingrained into our American way of thinking today that we have a hard time understanding that these were kind of foreign ideas to people who lived nearly 6,000 years ago. So when we read these stories, you know, we're reading with a certain amount of wisdom and discernment. We're not afraid to ask hard questions, but we're not, but we're not willing to dismiss them just because they sometimes clash with our way of thinking. What I'm saying is the Bible is true. The Bible can withstand intense scrutiny. But, I'm going to tell you, the Bible is not a children's book. It'll take you back a few years. I had a conversation with a man who said, I used to read the Bible a lot, but to be quite honest, I think it's a bunch of nonsense. I said, well, tell me about your experience reading the Bible. He said, well, I went to a Christian school up through the seventh grade. And I, you know, we had to read parts of it every week as part of homework assignments. And I asked him if he ever read the Bible much after he got out of that Christian setting and had to do it for homework. And he said no, and the reason he had was because he said he had gotten as much out of it as he could stand in grade school. Now, that describes many of you here. I hate to say it. But you grew up and you read about as much of the Bible as you had to in what we call confirmation. And you then knew it all. Isn't that what confirmation means? I now know it all. Give me the Bible. Give me the hymn book. Give me a box of envelopes. I'm a member, right? Now, what do you say to somebody like that? Well, I said, no offense, although I was about to offend him. Uh, no offense, but I doubt that you were able to grasp much about the Bible yet at age 10, 11, or 12. You might have the uh, understood the basic plot of some of the stories, but you know the great themes of the Bible go far beyond elementary school level. It's kind of the same that if you read some Shakespeare when you were in the fifth grade, one could justifiably say that while you may remember the general story of Romeo and Juliet and Hamlet, you would not really be qualified to discuss Shakespeare's works on a grown-up level. This is my big criticism sometimes in our church of Bible study. Kind of my criticism, if you will, even sometimes in Sunday school. We teach all of these little mountaintop stories. And when we got all of the little cutesy mountaintop stories, you know, Adam and Eve, the flood, the Ten Commandments, uh, how Abraham was going to offer up Isaac, uh, how Joseph got into Egypt, uh, David killed Goliath. Oh man, the rest of the stuff in the Old Testament, that's boring. Okay, then we go to Matthew, and we get all the stories about Jesus, how Jesus turned water into wine, and all the stories, and we get to the book of Acts, and you know, we hear about Paul at Damascus, and we get a few more stories, and then we get into, oh man, Romans, that's too deep. 
We got, but we like to get to get to Revelation so we can read about dragons and serpents and chains and stuff like that. And what, what, what's happened is we only know bits and pieces. And we don't sometimes know why or how it all fits together. That's not part of the sermon, but that's part of my rant for the morning, okay? Now, even though my sermon is now about to go in a different direction, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on that subject because we, that's what we need to understand about reading the whole Bible, it, particularly the Old Testament I'm thinking about today. We need to make an effort to read these stories with wisdom and discernment and be able to ask some really hard questions about the Word of God and to learn everything we can about the context in which those stories fit and where they fit into the general theme of what God is trying to tell us in the entire scope of the Bible. You know, what's going on in history at that time? I'm going to tell you, I believe in every last single word of God in this Bible. I believe the Bible is truly the inspired and inerrant word of God for time and eternity. Uh, I believe that the Bible is God-breathed. That's what 2 Timothy says. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. It can, it can stand any level of scrutiny you want to put it to. That's why we ought to scrutinize it on a regular basis. It's up to us to dig into the Bible and to learn as much as we can and see if we can somehow apply it to our daily lives. Now... As I said before in this story, now we're kind of getting back to the story, the people here are griping and complaining. Anybody ever been guilty of that? Besides me and Jason? Okay, a couple of us. Okay. They start complaining. They complain about everything, and suddenly, slithering, slowly, come the snakes. Now, that ought not to be too surprising that snakes come slithering into the camp. After all, where are they at? In the desert, I think, where snakes hang out. Some of the people get bitten by these snakes. Some of them die. Others in the group suddenly go, Whoa, when we're obedient, God takes care of us and protects us and provides for us. But when we rebel against God... When, you know, trouble always seems to find us. And so in verse 7 of what Sue read before, they came to Moses and they said, We've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. It's another way of saying, we've been griping about God and we've been griping about you, by the way. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. People came to their senses, huh? Verse 9. Moses prayed. God told him what to do. He says, make a replica of a poisonous snake. Attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses makes a snake out of bronze, attaches it to a pole. Then anyone who is bitten by the snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. So much for today's sermon. Get a closing song? <laughs> or would you kind of like to know what this means? <laughs> That's kind of a weird song, kind of a weird thing. I, I want to make just three general observations about this. Here's the very first observation. First of all, I want you to see that God provided the solution for the snake problem, but he didn't remove the snakes. Took care of the snake problem, but didn't get rid of the snakes. Snakes 
are an inevitable part of life. Every last one of us are going to have problems. There's no getting around the snake problem in our life. However, whenever we get into this negative mindset, when we start complaining and moaning and groaning about everything and nothing suits us, I'm going to suggest to you that it just makes it easier for snakes to single us out. See, when you spread poison with your thoughts, with your gossip, with your words, with your attitudes, with your actions, don't be surprised if other poisonous creatures seek you out. When you're griping and complaining all the time, don't be surprised if these snaky attacks don't seem to somehow multiply in your life. Now, when that happens, you can shake your fist at God and you can say, Why is this happening to poor little me? This isn't fair. I deserve better. And if you want to, you can get angrier and angrier. You can get bitter. And I'll tell you, once you get bitter, nothing will ever get better. Or, now this is not a but, this is an or. Or, you can do what the people of Israel did in this story. Instead of blaming God, you know, playing the blame game for their problems, they took a look at themselves. And they decided to accept responsibility for their own actions. They came to Moses, and what did they say? We have sinned. And from there, when that happened, the solution to their snake problem began to unfold. Now, I don't know who I'm talking to here this morning. I don't know who I'm going to talk to that listen to these messages on the web. But I would tell any one of you, friends, if you're facing a mountain of problems right now, it isn't necessarily because you have sin in your life, because problems are just the fact of life. Jesus says the rain falls, what, on the just and the unjust. In other words, everybody goes through difficulties. But I will say this. If you're overwhelmed by problems right now, where problems seem to be day in, day out, with no relief at sight, it might be a good idea to look in the mirror and do a little bit of self-evaluation. Now, it's not so much that God's trying to punish you. It's that he can't bless you when you have a bad attitude. I actually told somebody that one time who said, how is it that God always seems to bless what you do and not me? Check your attitude, buddy. Maybe you're blocking it. See, God can't bless you when you're griping and complaining all the time. can't bless you when you're never con content with what he does or doesn't do in your life. See, at the very first sign of trouble, maybe we ought to learn to ask, is it something I need to change? I mean, to take a look at our attitude, take a look at our heart, pay attention to our habits, change what needs to be changed. Now, this doesn't mean, again, I'm going to go back to my main point, it doesn't mean that God is going to remove the snakes. He didn't do it for the children of Israel. He won't always do it for you. He won't always do it for me. Snakes are there. They're always going to be there. However, God can give you victory over snakes, even the snakes that you invited into camp with your sinful behavior. You ever think about it that way? You're snaky, snaky, snaky. Sometimes our sinful behavior is inviting them in. See, once you take responsibility for your attitude, your actions, once you confess your sin to God, turn your heart toward Him, He forgives you. I mean, God simply said, you're surrounded by snakes right now, 
but I can help you out of this mess. I wish I had the video clip from Indiana Jones today. Because <laughs> Indiana Jones, I hate snakes. <laughs> but every time he's surrounded by snakes, he's delivered. And that would have been a great visual. Some of you can visualize that yourself. He's not going to make your problems disappear, but he's going to give you the power to get through them. That's observation one. Here's, here's the second observation, second thing to notice. You need to start looking at your problems with the right perspective. Verse 9, the Lord said, make a replica of a poisonous snake, attach it to a pole. Now, when I first read this story, even as a kid, I wondered, why make a snake? Why not some religious symbol? Why would he have them make a replica of the enemy? Well, here's why. God had delivered the Ten Commandments to his people, and in it, he, what did he forbid? He forbade the use of graven images in worship. He did this because God cannot somehow be reduced to a mere image or idol. You can't take a statue and say, this is Jehovah God. I mean, you can't even say, this looks like Jehovah God. You, you can't really say this kind of represents Jehovah God because God cannot be contained in some sort of a statue. There's no image whatsoever that can capture the essence of our God. A statue is what? It's lifeless, it's powerless, it's motionless, it's ultimately useless. Our God, on the other hand, is what? He's alive. He's all-powerful. He's present everywhere. He moves among us. There is nothing that our God can't do. On the other hand, our problems, they are not all-powerful. Our problems are not all-knowing. Their essence, though, can be captured in an image. And so when the people of Israel looked at that replica of that poisonous snake, they had a chance to remember. They kind of remembered that the snake is nothing compared to the power of God. This snake is just a lifeless chunk of bronze, but we serve God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, God who created snakes, God who created the bronze. We serve a God who delivers his people from the hands of Pharaoh. We we worship a God who parted the Red Sea. We worship the God who causes water to come out of rocks. We're the people who worship the God who causes manna to fall on the land. We serve an all-powerful God. And these snakes, they don't even begin to compare to it. I'm going to make a weird suggestion here today. I want you to try doing what Moses and his people did. To make a replica of your biggest problem. Whatever kind of snake that might be slithering in your life today, capture it in, in the essence of an image. Maybe to find something that represents the snakes that are threatening you, whether it's money or failing health or alcoholism. Maybe find something that reminds you that your problems can be reduced to a small trinket but are nothing compared to the power of God. Okay, give me an example. My uncle was an alcoholic. Preached at his funeral. But I know that for about the last 15 years of my uncle David's life, he was alcohol-free. 
but he carried something in his pocket all the time. Any of you that know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous know that when you reach sobriety for periods of time, five years, ten years, fifteen years, they give you little medallions. And my uncle would carry those in his pocket. He could look at that and say, my problem can be reduced to this insignificant little trinket. I know people who are alcoholics who keep an empty bottle, an empty bottle, mind you, an empty bottle of Jack Daniels on a shelf in their house. And every time they see it, it reminds them that chunk of glass, that little liquid, is nothing compared to the power of my God. See, God told Moses to make a bronze snake so the people of Israel would always remember that compared to God, the God we serve, our biggest problems are just a hunk of junk. Here's the third thing. Every time you look at your problem, make sure you're looking in God's direction. Every time you look at your problem, look in God's direction. Verse 9, make a replica of a poisonous snake attached to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze, attached it to a pole. Then everyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. See, a significant part of this strategy is that the snake was to be put up on this pole so that the people would have to look up when they needed to be healed. When they looked up, they saw two things. They saw, saw a cold, lifeless replica of a snake on the end of a stick, and beyond that they could see the heavens, which the Bible says declares the glory of God. All I'm saying is, friends, you've got to pay attention to your problems. Pretending they don't exist doesn't make them go away. But what you need to do is when you think about your problem, think about the power of God. You know, when you contemplate your bad situation, contemplate the goodness of God. Uh, remind yourself every day, as many times a day as is necessary, my problem is itty-bitty, but my God is great big. <laughs> I don't care how you want to praise it. Uh, I'm not going to take my eyes off the prize. I mean, because all this stuff down here is just so much junk. Up there is what's important. That bronze snake of the pole didn't have any power in itself. It couldn't heal anybody's snake bite. The power came from looking at the snake or the problem with the eyes of faith, with the assurance that God could do what he said he could do. And guess what? That kind of faith still works today. One day when Jesus was preaching, he talked about this story, by the way. Do you know that? In John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, right ahead of John 3, 16 of all places, he says, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on the pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. And then you know how it goes on. For God so loved the world. That's the next verse. See, when Jesus said the Son of Man must be lifted up, what was he talking about? He was talking about being lifted up on that cross as a sacrifice for our sins. In effect, he was saying, I must be lifted up to give eternal life to everybody who looks up to me, who fixes their eyes on Jesus, who puts their faith in me. See, God made a covenant with his people. That's why I called it the look-up covenant. The look-up covenant, because if you will look up to him, 
He will save you. He will heal you. He will deliver you from whatever is troubling you. Now, again, I'm going to tell you, he's not going to make all your problems disappear. You still get bit from time to time. I'm not going to ask if anybody here has been bit by a snake lately. But chances are, you have. That's just life. But he'll give you the power to overcome whatever comes your way. It doesn't even make any difference if you're the person who invited the snakes into your midst by your sinful behavior. If you did, you already know it's a dumb thing to do. Now all you need to do is focus on the right thing and the smart thing, which is to look up to Jesus, who can take it all away. I'm going to end this with some short, godly, biblical advice as your pastor. Three things. One, don't contemplate your problems without contemplating God at the same time. That's one piece of advice I'd give us all, including myself. Don't be messing around with your problems without thinking about the God who can take care of them. Here's the second piece of advice I'd give you. Give God a chance to work in your life. Because he can do miracles in it. I know it. Experienced it. Seen it. But give God a chance to work in your life. Don't be walking around with a handful of snakes all the time. Third piece of advice I'd give you is give him a chance to speak to your heart. Listen to what he might actually want to say to you. I believe with all my heart that God has something to say to every last single one of you. Now, while traveling this last week, I saw a new sign for the church. I don't think I'll use it, but it said, if you're looking for a sign that God loves you, this is it. You think about that for a moment. But I just say, if you want a sign that God loves you, well, this is it. If you want a sign that God loves you, there it is. you want a sign that God loves you, there it is. you want a sign that God loves you, there it is. And all he says is, is he wants to use you in a great way. See, God is ready, God is willing, God is able to pour out abundance into your life. He's waiting for you to quit looking at the snakes and instead to start looking up to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for all kinds of things that we can look up to. Most importantly, the wonderful gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us in the time when those snakes come slithering into our lives or when we sometimes intentionally drag them into our lives to know that you have the power over these things and you have the power that you desire to share with us. We thank you for the gift of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.